The world began with words. The author of life started his great story with a whirlwind of words that pushed up dry land out from the watery waste, a great mountain with a towering top high in the heavens. His words beckoned trees and plants to crawl out from a barren, bald land and stretch upwards toward a ball of light that floated in the heavens. With his voice, he cracked the crust of the earth so springs of water could rush to the aid of a budding garden. Rabbits, rams, wolves, and white-tailed deer bounded out from every corner of this first forest. From the tops of the trees, birds burst forth in song and joined the author's anthem of life and light. All of this crowded creation was born of divine breath, and from the beating heart of a triune God who had a plan and a purpose for this lush land. He formed it in three days and filled it in three more. And on that sixth day, God, in the midst of all his heavenly host, stood and sang the climactic chorus that fashioned a man from the ground and a woman from the man's side. But to what end? What was his plan and purpose for it all? Why clutter the cosmos? Why the matter-making melody? Here, I contend that he did all of this so he could dwell with us and we with him, always and forever, world without end. The story of all creation and of the whole Bible is ultimately a story of God building a house and making it into a home for him and his people. My name is Kenneth Padgett, and this is the Story of God podcast, presented by Wolfbane Books. Most great stories start a long, long time ago in a land far, far away. But this story is the true story of our world. And the first words of this true story were spoken when there were no human ears yet to hear them. Before the mountains towered over the dry lands, before giant rivers slithered through the rainforests, and before the first snowflake adorned the poles of our planet, there was only a chaotic sea of deep darkness. You see, in the beginning, the world was formless and void. It was wild and waste, uninhabitable chaos, or tohu vavohu in the Hebrew. Darkness was over the face of the deep, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God spoke into the dark, watery wilds, this tohu vavohu. He used words to order it according to His good pleasure. At his decree, light, land, and living things all appeared exactly where God told them to. His words gave form to the wild and function to the waste. Proverbs 3 says that he shaped the shapeless according to his own infinite wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. And it was good. Tov is the Hebrew word for good. T-O-V. It was tov. Then God crowned this good creation with wondrous, glorious beings made in his own image. In his likeness he made mankind. Male and female he created them. And before he took up his ruling rest on the seventh day, he looked out across this newborn world, a world that was bursting with potential, and declared it very good. Not just tov, good, but tov ma'od, very good. 
as stories are wont to do, this greatest of all stories began with words, but not our words, his words. It has been noted by many Hebrew scholars that Genesis 1 has an elevated literary form, not exactly poetry, but we could say a poetic prose. It has a highly stylized literary beauty and sophistication. There's an evening and morning rhythm to creation. There's symmetry in the six days. The first three days, God is forming the cosmos, and the next three days, he's filling it. The light of day one coincides with the stars, sun, and moon of day four. He forms the sky and the sea in day two and fills them with birds and fish on day five. The dry land of the third day is inhabited by the animals and humans on the sixth day. God's world-building work is like a waltz. One, two, three. One, two, three. If you have ears to hear, there's a melody in the making. Speaking of world-building, if you're like me, then your imagination has been forever captured by the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lord of the Rings. These epic tales were written by men who had the story of the Bible deep in their bones. So it is no wonder that both worlds, Narnia and Middle-earth, were sung into existence. Let me briefly recount the creation of Narnia from the magician's nephew. A boy named Diggory and a young gal named Polly had been called with a few others into a pitch-black world. In the midst of their confusion in this chaotic nothingness, they began to hear music. In the darkness, something was happening at last. A voice had begun to sing. Its lower notes were deep enough to be the voice of the earth herself. There were no words. There was hardly even a tune. But it was, beyond comparison, the most beautiful noise ever heard. And by this song, galaxies lit up the darkness. Then suddenly Aslan, the great lion, began a new song. The lion was pacing to and fro about that empty land and singing a new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun, a gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping up the lower slopes of the distant mountains, making that young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling the grass. Lewis was a man whose imagination was captivated by the story of God. Having Aslan, the Jesus figure in Narnia, sing the world into existence is a brilliant and beautiful parallel to the true story of our world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth by speaking. Jesus' beloved disciple John opens his gospel account saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis 1, we see that the world began with words. In John 1, we see that the Word began the world. In the beginning, the triune God set out to create the heavens and the earth. And after God constructs the cosmos in Genesis 1, the author of this new, well-ordered world did the most marvelous and remarkable thing yet. He made it into a home for him and his people. 
This holy house was actually a flourishing garden sanctuary filled with butterflies and budding flowers. Perhaps you know it as the Garden of Eden. This lush land's nutrient-rich soil anchored the roots of every tree that was pleasing to behold and good for food. And an array of brilliant colors dappled the crowns of every tree in every direction. Beneath the boughs of these trees, a river flowed out from Eden and watered the garden and then split into four rivers that went down from Eden, weaving through the rest of the world. Perhaps surprisingly to many modern readers, Eden and its garden actually sat on top of a mountain. This mountaintop abode would have been expected in the minds of the first readers of Genesis, but it has been largely lost in a modern world so different from the ancient one from which the story derives. But God's mountaintop presence is a theme that appears again and again throughout the story of the Bible. Mountaintops in the biblical story tend to be a place where heaven, God's space, and earth, man's space, overlap. In the ancient mind, this is an obvious reality. Mountains reach up into the heights of the heavens. There is an inherent majesty and transcendence to them. They are difficult to ascend and thus have strategic advantages. And the panoramic view atop a mountain provides perspective and seems to be the perfect place to rule over the world. But we don't need to lean on our understanding of the ancients' view of mountain-dwelling deities. And it's not just the downward flow of the river we read about in Genesis 2. The Bible clearly locates Eden on top of God's mountain. In Ezekiel 28, the prophet calls Eden the Garden of God. And then a few verses later, he identifies the location on the Holy Mountain of God. So in order to begin to see the why of Genesis 1, why did he create the world? It's helpful to see the where of Genesis 2. The Garden of Eden sat atop a mountain. It's important to recognize that God's presence is regularly connected with mountains in the biblical story. Eden, Mount Sinai, and Mount Zion are some of the highest peaks in this mountain range of God's grand narrative. And each one is inhabited by Yahweh himself, whether he's walking through the garden, standing in the midst of a burning bush, or filling the temple with his glorious presence. As a side note, this is precisely why the illustrations in our book, The Story of God With Us, are typically depicting landscapes. The biblical story is so layered with meaning that, in many passages, there's even theology happening in the geography. God situated his own space, heaven, and human space, earth, in the same space, on top of a mountain, a bit of earth that reached up into the heavens. In Eden, there is an overlapping and interlocking of God's space and man's space. This mountaintop garden of God was created so that humans could dwell in the presence of God. This was God's good goal in creation. Adam and Eve were placed in God's garden and told to be fruitful. They were to multiply and fill the whole earth with God's goodness. God made humans so they, like the garden itself, could flourish in His presence, sustained and satisfied by His life and light. As we close out this episode, just imagine with me where all of this leads. Adam and Eve flourishing in the presence of God, multiplying and having children in Eden, and their children having children, and their children having children, and so on and so forth. Can you imagine that as the people of God continue to multiply, they cultivate the garden over millennia, expanding its borders over the rest of the world? It's not long before a global garden city begins to come into view. A city with no sin, no tears, 
and no death, a city filled and flowing with God's life and light. I say again, this is the telos of creation. This is God's good goal for the world that he made. He builds a house in chapter 1 of Genesis and makes it into a home in chapter 2 of Genesis so that he can dwell with us and we with him always and forever, world without end. This reality is the foundational reality that binds the whole story of the Bible together. Ultimately, all the wondrous deeds of God found in the Bible and in our lives are all bent toward this end. The origin story of earth and all humanity establishes the paradigm of another Hebrew word, shalom, a state of wholeness and perfect peace as we flourish in the presence of God. True shalom can only be found in the presence of God, something Adam and Eve experienced without hindrance on his holy mountain and something all humanity was meant to experience. I could not think of a more spectacular vision for the world than the one we find in the first two chapters of the Bible. But you'll never guess what happens next. This episode of the Story of God podcast was presented by Wolfbane Books. Please visit us at wolfbanebooks.com or on social media at wolfbanebooks.com.